I'm correspondent Tom Wilmer. Come along and join me, along with Cal Poly journalism student Addie Yule, as we meet with award-winning author and poet Joan Gelfand. Gelfand shares fascinating tales chronicled in her book, Outside Voices. When Gelfand moved from New York City in the early 1970s, she landed in the epicenter of Berkeley, California's burgeoning women's movement. And her book, vividly and lyrically explores her personal journey of awakening, artistically, sexually, and spiritually, during a radical time in a remarkable place. You know all the rules by now and the fire from the ice. Will you come with me? Joan Gelfand, what a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, a poet and an author. And I think you should be a screenwriter. I work with screenwriters, but I have enough on my plate. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you, I even told your publicist, Outside Voices is your book that we're talking about today. As I was reading, it literally was like watching a movie. It was so vivid and so fluid and so lyrical. And I think... And I know you know, but I think it was because you started out as a poet. And so there's this poetic voice to your prose that makes it sing. Well, also, I'm a very visual person. I kind of grew up immersed in the visual arts. A couple of people in my family are artists. And I grew up in New York City going to art museums, the Metropolitan and the Museum of Modern Art. So my first inspiration was actually visual art. So I'm very visual. Yeah. Yeah. And neither here nor there. But as I was reading, I went, you know, it almost feels like she took poems and then recrafted them into prose lines. Is that fair? It's a beautiful compliment. I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) So is unconscious, just that flow of the poet trying to write linear words. Exactly. Let's go back in time. You were a girl in New York, right? Not upstate New York, but New York, New York. The city, yes. Yeah. So tell us about that. Well, remember, New York in the 70s was kind of a nasty place to be. Think about the punk rock movement and Patti Smith, and it was really gritty. Mm -hmm. And I was a nature girl. I loved being in the wide open. People say now my happy place Mm -hmm. was the woods. And I was like, hmm, this isn't quite working for me. And I don't know if I want to make the rest of my life here. So I said, I actually had a friend who was going to California, and I said, oh, that sounds like total fun. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm going for three months. Let's back up for a moment, because another thing that resonated with me was your dirty dancing interlude in the Adirondacks. I mean, what a vivid time that must have been. You know, it was the end of the 60s, but the early 70s, and there was a definite, how would you say, the doors were open for a lot of experimentation and fun. Mm -hmm. But just like like that summer camp, Innocence. I mean, how cool. Oh, that part. The family in the the bungalow colony. Well, that was just something that 
Jewish families did to make up to their children for growing up in gritty New York. They took them out of the city if they could afford it, up into the Catskills. And I was, that was, yeah, we, but, we had a lot of fun there. But didn't Dirty Dancing resonate with you on certain Oh, totally, levels? totally, yeah. totally. And there's another film, um, Something of the 13th Moon, uh, written by a woman in L.A. It came out maybe 15 years ago, but it was, it was the exact scene, mm-hmm. yeah. So you could see it, feel it. Yeah, and it, that's why I was taking it back. It wasn't the Adirondacks, it was the Catskills. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. no, okay, that's the, yeah. Well, now, having never lived in New York, it's all the same to me. All the same. Yeah. Poconos, Adirondacks, yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, pretty much. So what spurred you to move to California and why? So I didn't plan to move here. I came and then we had one introduction to one person, and that person was a musician. And the next thing I knew, I was enveloped in this community of artists and writers, and I was a budding writer, and I was being encouraged. And I thought, this is really valuable. This is really a rich place. And as I said, I think Berkeley became my happy place, you know, not only was I able to express my and start to learn to be a real writer, but there was nature. Before you arrived, did you know there was a revolution going on in Berkeley, California? Um, I knew that a lot of the cool kids were there, but I didn't know exactly the depth of what was going on. The question that I asked myself over and over again to ask you, time and place, why? Why Berkeley? Why at that time in history, especially the women's movement? What happened? What was the stimulus? Well, the second wave feminism definitely had started on the East Coast. Bella Abzug. Right, Bella Abzug, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem. Betty Friedan had organized the National Organization for Women, and she had initiated this event called the Women's Strike. But then that energy, of course, came to California. And right before I got there, there was a huge women's feminist conference in LA and UCLA. And that started to coalesce women who were activists and political up in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that Berkeley was the epicenter, but it was definitely um, things happened in Berkeley because it was a much more free environment. You could live inexpensively. That was a huge impact. And then also remember, we're on the tail end. We've had free speech coming out of Berkeley. We've had the summer of love coming out of Berkeley. So a lot of these women were both feminists and hippies. You know, it just was, for me, the perfect marriage of interests and traditions and motivations. Did you seek out intentionally to cohabitate in a women's house, or could it have been men and women, or was it intentional? I think at that point, the women... We started to realize that if we wanted to get certain things done, 
we had to kind of have some time and space for ourselves mm-hmm. without the male influence. So, for example, I moved in with this women's band, and one of the big issues for them was I'm tired of being the sidekick in a men's in a you know may all male band like I'm the chick singer or I'm the chick drummer this was like we want to be the band we want to be center stage Mm -hmm. and of course you know you mentioned Joan Paez it's it's coming off of this we had kind of a tsunami of individual women musicians that were breaking ground. Joni Mitchell, Carol King, Carly Simon, people like that who were standing up, but now Laura Nero. So now this was women together as a band saying, we don't want to be just one person and we don't want to be the sidekick of the guys. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it together. And you went to that festival with that women's band. That's cool. Tell us about that interlude. Well, that was just heaven. I mean, now people go to Coachella, they go to these Taylor Swift concerts. But as I say in my book, you didn't need a mortgage to go to a music concert at that time. You know, I think it was free. (laughs) And it was up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Who knows who organized it? I still don't know. But it was like, there we were. There was a swimming pool. We were camping. There were women's bands. It was just super fun immersing yourself amongst women was part of it comfort nurturing for you yeah i mean i look back and of course having the book come out is bringing up all of those uh issues that i went through at that time did you know you were bi when you got there not really but remember the book is these is this braided two stories of both Berkeley and also what I was going through from my father dying at such a young age. I was 11 when my father died. And so I realize now that um, there was a part of me that maybe didn't trust men Mm -hmm. at that moment. So for me, it was kind of a good confluence of things. And Was it a safe harbor for you? Yeah, I would say that. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, Yeah, it was a safe place for me to be. A nurturing place. Very much. The best of feminine. Yeah, very much. Interesting. This was like you mentioned in the books, post-Altamont. So the summer of love, the days of that innocence, the dawning of the Aquarian Age was over. So it was a rougher, tougher place in the 70s in Berkeley than it was in the 60s. Absolutely. I keep telling people I had grown up and I was a young activist in high school. We were protesting the Vietnam War. So I just tell people, we had just been fighting since I was 15 years old. So we just kept fighting. You know, yeah, I was less involved in the summer of love than I was in the anti-war and then this social action with building women's shelters for battered women, fighting for rape victims. And we also, if you look at the website for the Berkeley Revolution, a professor at UC Berkeley was so intrigued with this particular era that he had his students in American history deeply research these the same years that are in my book, mm-hmm. 1972 to 1975. And he was the one who put the n- moniker, the Berkeley Revolution. 
you know, we were also working closely with the Black Panthers. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just, it was, I, I would say, a couple of disenfranchised groups and the disabled, because that's when the Center for Independent Living came up, was developed in Berkeley to give disabled people rights. Yeah, a lot of things were changing fast and furiously in that age. Interesting. So talk to us about Triple Thread, your poetry. And I love that your musician friend took the words of your poem and turned it into music. That's really cool. Tell us about that journey. You know, I arrived in Berkeley and I was, <laughs> what I keep saying, you know, I was a little baby poet. I was very insecure. I was very shy. And I met these women that were so empowered. I, I didn't know that you could stand up and say, I am a writer. I am an artist. I am a filmmaker. I, I was blown away. So I had a lot of mentors. So you were surrounded by them. Surrounded Every by, and people who were successful, mm -hmm. people who were actually making films that were getting shown, painting that were getting into galleries, writing things that were being published. I mean, it was like I was the newbie and this culture was already on the rise. And I was so encouraged to stand up and own own it. And that gave me confidence because then I started getting published. Again, another part of this era, Tom, was women were being empowered for the first time economically. When I've been speaking to groups, I think they're awestruck when I say, you don't realize, but in the late 60s, women could not get a mortgage, they could not get credit cards, they were not empowered economically. Here we fast forward just five or 10 years, all of a sudden women are economically empowered. So women were starting presses, restaurants. This is when Chez Panisse in Berkeley mm -hmm. came up. And you started a restaurant. And we started, it was funky. It wasn't Chez Panisse. It was funky, but it was fun. Mm -hmm. And it was in a church? It was building, in a right? church. It was in a church. Yeah, that's really cool. One of the things I love the most were your cohabitating partners in the house, the houses that were just hilarious. I mean, like movie characters. Talk to us about some of your favorites. Well, through the house that we lived in, which there's a chapter in the book called The Falling Down House. Yeah. I mean, I look back at that now as a full-grown adult, and I say, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> I mean, this house barely had paint on it. But that house had been rented before us by some people who were hanging around with this group in San Francisco called the Angels of Light. And they were a mix of gay men and bisexual men who all were very theatrical. We were doing a lot of things with them and partying with them and going to Grateful Dead shows with them. And they were an offshoot. These Angels of Light were an offshoot of a group that got a little bit famous called the Coquettes, who were so chaotic and disorganized that when they got invited to New York, all these famous people showed up like Andy Warhol and Truman wow. Capote. These guys didn't have a script. They were stoned. And so they blew it completely. Oh, no. They just could not cut it in New York. But in San Francisco, remember, 
everything was pretty casual. We didn't function at the level of elitism and professionalism that people dealt with in New York, which was really a big appeal to me. And talk to us about your road trips. Well, the famous one that made it in the book was the band had gotten invited to sing at a women's prison. And they said, well, Joan, since we made your poem into a song, let's all go together. I said, well, if we're going to Southern California and it's winter, we should drive down to Baja, down into Mexico. And we had this old truck. One of the women had this old... It was old like a 1944? 1940 pickup truck yeah. with a house on the back. <laughs> and off we go. We don't know Spanish. We don't know... Well, of course, it's not as dangerous as it is now. You know, people... Anyway, mm-hmm. we get there. And uh, on the way home, we got stopped by the Federales, and they were determined to nail us for something. And uh, you'll have to read the book to find out what happened. (laughs) So you came back. I did survive. And didn't you have a northbound trip too, road trip? Yes, that was the other thing. So in Berkeley, you know, nothing stays the same, right, Tom? What do they say? The only thing constant is change. So here's Berkeley, and it's really cool, and everybody's doing all this cool stuff. But then, of course, people are not happy. They're like, ah, let's go to Oregon. Well, then it wasn't only just that people wanted to go to Oregon. Ken Kesey was like, oh, Oregon's cool. So then everybody went to Oregon. And women were buying land in Oregon. And so the whole idea with Oregon was we're going to go back to the land. We're going to be completely self-sufficient. We are not beholden to corporate life were off the grid it was you know it was edgy our little group knew some people in washington i i went on my own self-directed writing retreat and it was really pivotal for me that was on vashon island vashon island yeah yeah. i know it well yeah that's so cool yeah that was very interesting so that was really epiphanous time for you wasn't it yeah i was able by kind of cutting out all the noise of what was going on in Berkeley in that time, just allowing myself to kind of be by myself for a good few days. And I was really determined to push my writing to a different level. You know, without all the distractions and all the noise, I was able to do that, yeah. And the woman who invited you up, she sounded really cool. She was cool. You know, it was a time when you didn't need to have a real job. You could Mm -hmm. just survive doing small things. And so people had time to become self-realized, quite honestly, because it didn't cost so much to live. Talk to us about some of the characters that you mentioned in the book, some of the women friends. They're just hilarious. Well, uh, probably the one that's sticking in your mind is is Cloud. Oh, definitely. definitely. <laughs> she was the one who stood pretty much within the first month of arriving in Berkeley. And she said, what do you do? Here I am, I'm like 18. I don't know what I do. So she, I said, I'm a poet. And she said, type your poems. <laughs> and she became my self-appointed mentor. And I would bring her my work You walked into her house, it was like a circus. She had laundry lines strewn all over her house with rapidiograph drawings. You say you're a Renaissance man and you're into everything. This woman was into everything and 
music, William Blake, poetry, art, theater. And then the next thing I heard, she ended up in a cult. But um, that happened to a lot of people, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But she was quite a character and very influential for me. There were other just artists and musicians that I think just by what they were doing were such great role models. You know, they were so enmeshed and confident in what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And a little bit more about why Berkeley? Why then? And what happened? As I said before, when you were talking about, you asked me about Dirty Dancing, this was a period, even though there was the Vietnam War, and I arrived on the day that Nixon got reelected and everybody hated Nixon, but because we were coming off free speech and the summer of love, doors were very open. And so people were really kind of going with their most heartfelt interests you know you nothing kind of stopped you yeah so really there was an innocence definitely and berkeley in particular i think i mean you know if you look at the whole global travel industry let's say you know certain places become it places like at one time it was istanbul then it was berlin and of course there was paris in the 20s you know berkeley was really the it place in the 70s there was so much energy creative energy and that draws people you know when you have bands that are playing and artists performing it keeps drawing people and it builds on itself. and it builds on itself yeah. so that was definitely happening yeah so at some point you left i did what moved you away you know i didn't actually leave the bay area but i removed myself from the women's community because it got too radical for me mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I remember you mentioning where no men the, were allowed, and that was like a deal breaker. That was a deal breaker because, you know, as you see now in political groups, there can be factions and you have your extremists. Mm-hmm. And so out of the blue comes these extremists that say the only way the feminist movement is going to succeed is if we eradicate men. And I was like, uh, I'm a feminist, but I just don't believe that. But you, you consistently also liked men. I did like, and, had, and I've always liked men. You had, had men, father, friends. brothers, cousins, yeah. best friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was like, I'm, I'm not going down that road. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So that was a deal breaker. That was a deal breaker. So where did you move to when you moved out of Berkeley? Um, At that moment, I was uh, starting to go to college, and I just... Moved over the border to Oakland for a while. Did you go to Mills College? I did my master's at Mills, but my first college foray was at San Francisco State. And the reason was is because they were very well regarded for their creative writing program. Mm -hmm. And Mills College is gone, isn't it? Oh, it's sad. Yeah. It's become an institute. Actually, what the last word is is that Northeastern, it is now a campus of Northeastern mm-hmm. because it's such a gorgeous campus. You can't get rid of Mills College. You're it's right. just so amazing. Yeah. Well, it's a part of the history of California. Very way much. Back, way back. Very much so. So I believe that Northeastern is funding it actually through a couple of different 
iterations, it's now an educational institution. Yeah. Did you ever get a real job? A day, yeah, jo- a day of job? of course. I had to. I mean, that was part of getting to the end of my college. I'm like, hmm, now what does a poet do to pay the rent? <laughs> and I got into advertising is oh. what I did. That was my foray into the real world. Interesting. Yeah. So how did you balance your two lives when you were had a real job? You know, I think because I didn't take a writing job, I was uh, in the media department. I kept all my writing energy for myself, mm-hmm. and so I never stopped writing, and that's what kept me going. And you've been publishing the whole time, right? No, no. no? I didn't get serious. Well, I was publishing when I was in Berkeley in the 70s, and that was in the days where someone said, I have a magazine, can I publish you? (laughs) It was so casual and easy. Mm -hmm. And then it became hard. And I couldn't kind of manage the structure and the rejection. And I got out of the publishing for about 10 or 15 years. And then I got very serious. I said, come on, you cannot do what you want to do with your career unless you start to publish. And so I got serious about publishing. Was and then it Publisher Parish? It was a little bit of Publisher Parish. Yeah. And in publishing, that's why I wrote the whole book on you can be a winning writer. It's very much every time you publish, it builds on itself. And mm-hmm. I keep teaching people you're building your reputation. So if you publish even a small article and it gets into the LA Review of Books, well, then, you know, your reputation is building. And that's kind of the path I took. Well, there's a stack of Joan books there. There's outside voices on the top. And then number two is Extreme, a novel. Yes, this novel almost broke me. (laughs) (laughs) This novel is about a gaming startup in Silicon Valley. And so in the late 90s, I decided that there wasn't enough literature coming out of Silicon Valley, and I was going to be the one to do it. Well, my luck would have it that... By the time I was finished writing a book, because Tom, I think you know you can't write a book. I can't write a book in two or three months. By the time I delivered this book to agents in New York, the first bubble had burst. Oh, wow. Timing is everything. And timing is, that's why Outside Voices, I think, kind of hit it more Mm -hmm. on the nose of of the right timing, because it's the 50-year anniversary of Mm -hmm. the women's second wave feminism and people associate it with the anniversary of free speech. But this, the timing, I mean, the people were like, in New York, the agents and the publishers were like, Silicon Valley, who cares about Mm bits.com? And then I sat back and I waited. I know, I think you know, many writers will put a project away. And then Facebook, Google came up and I said, people are really fascinated with Silicon Valley again. I'm going to go back. And I... So I you, finished the book. Oh, cool. So it's out. And it's in bookstores in the Bay Area. Oh, yeah, all over. Santa Clara. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> all over. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us for a moment about you can be a winning writer. You're giving away all your secrets. I do. <laughs> I do. But I also teach. And so when I teach, I tell people, you know, the highlights of the book. And then I've taught 
classes, like I told you at the Cuesta Writers Conference, I teach at the San Francisco Writers mm -hmm. Conference. So every time I teach, I tell people, well, if you really want to learn more, you, you read the book. Give us a cliff note teaser. One tidbit. Well, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is community. And most writing books focus on the craft of writing, right? You know, you got to get your craft. You got to get your craft. Yes, of course you do. But you also have to build a fan base. And people have to realize that you build your fan base one fan at a time. Mm -hmm. And I remember I, I didn't say that. I heard that at a writer's conference from a well-published author. And so community, you know, I'm trying to encourage young writers to get involved with their professional organizations, to be a friend to other writers, that it's not all just about you all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that's th one thing that I think makes this book unique. One more community insider, a little tidbit from the book. What would be the first thing that you would want me to read about in the book? Chapter, section? Uh, what I would want you to, if you were an aspiring writer, not if you were Tom Wilner, the <laughs> radio host, but if you were an aspiring writer, I would say read the part on building your writer's resume because it's so easy to build up a list of publications and then you have something to talk about when you talk to agents and publishers. That's really, really important. That's really cool. And once again, the title of the book, You Can Be a Winning Writer. Yes, this was an Amazon number one bestseller when it came out. That's I was very so cool. proud of that, yeah. But it's definitely still in print. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about your in-person presentation that you do, different speeches and whatnot. On Winning Writer? No, in your life right now, you know. Well, right now I'm talking a lot about outside voices. And what's so cool is that it just opens a door for people to remember their own experiences. And so I'm hearing a lot about that. That's really awesome. Mm -hmm. The other fun thing is that I was interviewed on iHeartRadio. And at the end, the producer said to me, you know, you've inspired me to revisit my own social action agenda. And I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, if this book can kind of whip people into being excited about doing what we have to do, of course, as you know, we are now in a moment where we have to really work hard to make sure we preserve our democracy. And uh, for women, the biggest issues, of course, right now are women's rights over their own bodies. And Once thing. again, the men are dictating. Exactly, exactly. Um, a friend of mine who is a total politically correct, left-leaning Democrat said, we have to get Nikki Haley in if we don't get Biden, <laughs> because at least it's a woman. That's funny. Yeah. A friend of mine, a journalism student from Cal Poly State University, is with us today. And I thought it'd be cool to have Addie jump in. Hi, I'm Addie. I'm a journalism student at Cal Poly, and I just had a few questions for you. So going back to when you said you first arrived in Berkeley and you weren't too confident saying, you know, I am a woman, I'm a writer, I'm a poet, so I'm also a young writer and a woman. So I was just wondering how you kind of got more comfortable with that label and kind of self-identifying as 
that's something you're interested in? That's such a great question. For me, coming from being a young writer with very little confidence, every single thing, every single event that ascertained or affirmed my writing self moved me Mm -hmm. to be more confident. So in other words, having my first reading, having my first publication, and then as you go down the line, having your first book. You know, I spent many years in business, and we always used to say success breeds success. So you just have to set yourself up. What small thing can I do to bring success? That's why often I teach writers, you know, you think you want to sit down, write that book, you torture yourself to write, you know, your 300-page book. Well, that's great, but the chances of that book getting published are iffy. So why not start with small things? Get an article published, get a poem published. And as I said to Tom, then you have a writer's resume. Then you have something that when you go out to those publishers and agents, you have something to talk mm-hmm. about. Totally. So how did you go about getting those smaller things published before finding you know, your own literary agent? Well, I had no interest in writing anything very long Mm -hmm. for the first many years of my writing. So I was publishing poetry, reviews, short stories. So for me, that was a natural fit because I didn't want to write anything long. Um, And then when I wrote my first novel, it was an adventure to go out to an agent and get that feedback. You know, it's, it's really putting yourself out there and being very vulnerable. Yeah, totally. So how did that process work, acquiring an agent? Well, finally, this time, you know, I think writing a book that was so topical. Mm -hmm. This is the first book that was agented. This is my seventh book, but the other books did not need to be agented. In other words, the winning writer, colleague of mine, was the acquiring editor of Mango Publishing, and she just took my book. So not all books need an agent. But this book did need an agent. And um, another thing that I teach, nonfiction sells three times more than fiction. Oh, really? I'm so, that. yeah. So this being a nonfiction book, I had a better chance. And then the agent was able to take my proposal, guide me in the right, and then an editor guided me in writing it. And they were able to sell it to Post Hill Press. Very cool. You had mentioned earlier that you're involved in women's studies. Yeah, I'm for one of my journalism classes right now, um, we have to make a blog that we're going to add on throughout the quarter. And my blog is about modern day femininity. So I thought that was really interesting that um, Tom was talking to you today. My first kind of story is just about um, social media trends and how they've been portraying femininity. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of, but there's a lot of trends right now going on the platform TikTok where they say like, we're girls, we do this, and they portray femininity in a very specific light. So I'm just writing about that and how I think it can kind of toggle both ways because in a way, women are like claiming certain stereotypes and being like, you know, we do do this, it's kind of funny, whatever. But then in another way, it's kind of putting that claim on all women that might not want it. So that's what I'm discussing right now. Yeah, I think we're in a very interesting time, you know, for us to look at Beyonce and Taylor Swift with their 100% perfect bodies. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is great for them, but also can be very unsettling for women that 
are struggling with those issues. Yeah. The picture of like what a woman is is definitely getting smaller, I yeah. would say. Remember, we're only recording. He can yeah. he can edit anything he wants. That's true. Um, we can talk about Barbie. <laughs> oh, yeah, that actually was what I was thinking I was going to do my second story on. Is just, what were your thoughts on the movie Barbie? Did you see it? Yes. Barbie blew my mind. It blew your mind. It was good. It blew my mind because it felt like it was this such... Uh, an artful trick because of course the first part you just see margot robbie she's looking like barbie she's perfect and then that dance scene when she says do you think about death yeah and the music stops that was the pivotal moment when you knew this wasn't going to be a comic book Mm -hmm. and um i think that they addressed she the director the writers addressed really important issues and i'm thrilled that it was such a huge success and again gave greta gerwig now as a director her confidence is up i think it was the top grossing movie of the year yeah i think i saw it too i agree it was very good at depicting things like a lot of women don't want to talk about and i appreciated that definitely especially the scene where um it's pretty out there where they say, you know, no one likes women and they yeah. don't treat women well. And I think that was the other thing for me coming to Berkeley, you know, and I say it in the book, I grew up in a house with two women. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a mother that was judgmental and a sister that was critical. So when I got to Berkeley and I met women that were supportive, nurturing, encouraging, I had never gotten that. And a lot of women, now the younger women are being raised by feminists. My daughter is an executive at Salesforce. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's so confident. But she couldn't have been that confident if I didn't raise her, right? Because I was like, you're awesome, you know. But that's not how I was raised. So you weren't, you say you weren't raised to be a feminist or by a feminist? No. Yeah. And what would you say to parents who don't, like, a lot of people don't claim the title feminist, because I think there's a lot of connotation that comes along with that. So what would you say to a parent to raise, like, a very strong woman, you know, with, that, with like, that connotation? You know, labels are hard because people have different associations with it. Mm-hmm. I find it hard to believe that feminism has a negative connotation. But what about if we just talk about empowerment? Yeah. I mean, here we have women who accidentally get pregnant. They don't want that baby. Let's talk about her empowerment to make her own choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the currently the term feminism in itself is just getting a very like you were saying a lot of people view it as the extremist side that you were talking about a little bit when it's entirely not that so I know like my dad would never want me to be like a feminist you know because he kind of no that's really good to hear that's really good to talk about we need to talk about that that people have negative connotations and how do we change that a little bit yeah and I think a lot of people in my generation should learn more about Berkeley like read your book read pieces like that just to get more an understanding of how it came to be in movements that were early. Yeah, these issues that we're facing right now are so complex. Mm -hmm. We need to be really well informed. I mean, gun violence, racism, we need to know all sides of the issues. And that's the same thing with this. Yeah, let's just educate ourselves. 
I'm Addie Yule. I'm a journalism student at Cal Poly, and you've been listening to Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, interviewing Joan Gelfand. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you guys have a great week. Thank you so much for having me, Tom and Addie. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Lowell Thomas award-winning travel show Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, a featured podcast on NPR.org's podcast directory. You are invited to subscribe to Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer on NPR.org, iTunes, and more than 20 other podcast channels around the world. To learn more about Tom Wilmer's journeys around America and the world, log on to thomaswilmer.com. This is Roseanne Cash, and I'm sitting here with Tom Wilmer. Please support your local NPR station. I listen to WNYC in New York, and in fact, NPR is all I listen to. If I didn't have NPR, I would feel like my lifeline to the world has been cut. So yes, please support your local NPR station. World Bicycle Relief partners with communities to deliver specially designed, locally assembled, rugged bicycles for people in need. Nearly one billion people in rural regions of the world live in communities far from the nearest paved road, walking miles every day just to survive. Distance is a barrier to attending school, receiving health care, delivering goods to market, and other critical services needed to thrive. Find out how you can help deliver rugged, dependable, life-changing bicycles to deserving communities. Log on to worldbicyclerelief.org to learn more.